Paul is often talking about people I know nothing about. And the instructions that he gives are so specific and geared toward that particular context that they seem irrelevant to our day. But at the same time, I recognize that they are part of sacred scripture, and so they must have significance for us in our day. Now, thankfully, in this case, Paul's instructions give us a picture of gospel community. His concluding words describe for us or give us um, an image of a diverse community bound together by the common goal of proclaiming the gospel. It shows us a people adorning the gospel as they model reconciliation and restoration, as they model mutual encouragement and collaboration in order to proclaim God's authoritative word. So let's read Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 up to verse 18. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are my only, the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke the doctor and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So let's start at the very end. Paul, by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, is authenticating the letter. And the, the mere fact that he authenticates his letter demonstrates that he considers his letter not simply to be uh, one of our ordinary emails. He considers it to be an authoritative message for the church at large. 
And that's why he wants to make sure this is from Paul. This is from an apostle of Jesus Christ. It's not just for the believers at Colossae. That's why he wants them to have it read in verse 16 in the church in Laodicea. And that's also why in verse 7 to 9, he is commending Tychicus and Onesimus to the church as faithful men. Paul is using his personal credibility as an apostle to build up the credibility of Tychicus and Onesimus because they are his personal representatives. They are to treat Tychicus and Onesimus as if Paul was with them. Because they weren't just letter carriers. They were authorized to explain Paul's intent. That's why he says in verse um, 8, I am sending him to you for the express purpose that he may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. It wasn't just, he wasn't just the uh, courier. He was also going to explain to them what Paul meant in the letter. And of course, they were to give an update on Paul's circumstances. Now, that he calls Onesimus in verse 9, our faithful and dear brother, is actually rather astounding because Onesimus was the slave of Philemon, who was a member of the church. The people in the church would have known who Onesimus was. And he didn't have a very good reputation. It seemed that he had wronged Philemon in the past, but somehow had come in contact with Paul and become a believer. And so Paul, in referring to Onesimus as a faithful and dear brother, is overturning social norms. Because he is calling a slave, one with no status, his brother. According Onesimus the slave, the same status as Paul the apostle. Moreover, and it, it, it is demonstrating to us how the gospel transforms social relations and accords dignity to all people. Moreover, in calling Onesimus faithful, that shows how Christ has transformed a useless slave because in Philemon chapter 1, verse 11, Paul acknowledges that formerly Onesimus was worthless. Now he is a faithful worker. And for Philemon and the rest of the church to receive Onesimus and treat him the way they would treat Paul as his representative would embody the reconciling and restoring grace of the gospel. And they're not the only ones practicing reconciliation and restoration. Paul himself, when he commends to them Mark in verse 10, is practicing reconciliation and restoration. See, if you recall from Acts chapter 15, Paul did not want to take Mark along with them on their missionary journey because he had previously abandoned them in a missionary journey. But Barnabas insisted on Mark coming, so he and Paul actually stopped traveling together. The text says the contention was so sharp between them, they could not work together. And so now, 
when Paul instructs the church to welcome Mark and, to cons- and, and in Paul say, saying that he along with justice are the only co-workers for the kingdom of God and they have proved a comfort to me. That is implying that Mark and Paul have been reconciled and that Mark has been restored from somebody who bails on Paul and Barnabas to somebody who is a co-worker who comforts Paul in all of his struggles. And again, that's what the gospel does, isn't it? It transforms failures like Mark and heals broken relationships like that between Mark and Paul and Barnabas. And in the same way, we as a church need to live out that reality of being a place of restoration and reconciliation. And it can't and we can't simply be focused on ourselves. God's kingdom is broader than Crestwick. And you see that as Epaphras in verse 12 prays not only for the church of Col- in Colossae, he also is described as wrestling in prayer for the believers in Laodicea and Hierapolis. There's a concern for more than just his church. And Paul himself writes to Colossae and Laodicea, and he tries to encourage Archippus to be faithful to the ministry that God had given him. And in encouraging them to swap letters, it's not just because he considers his letters to be helpful to them. In exchanging letters, he is encouraging them to get to know one another, to share with one another their burdens and to to have a stronger bond in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I'm glad Crestwick is part of the fellowship. And I'm even more encouraged that we're part of Feb Central because Feb Central in the coming years will have the privilege of helping out Fellowship Atlantic. And I'm looking forward to finding out what, what that will involve on Wednesday when I attend the regional board meeting. It's, it's the church practicing the interdependent cooperative spirit that characterized the early church. And, you know, I'm glad that we're getting to practice that. We're sending Matt and Megan to Vanuatu with their family so that they can help the missionaries over there. You're sending me to Jamaica to minister to the pastors um, in the Caribbean. We are blessing other churches in that way. And my prayer is that our church would continue to be a blessing, not just to Guelph, but to the other churches around us. And we're not saying that we're awesome. Okay? We're, not, we're not thinking that we're better than anybody. We know too well our flaws. But we are honoring our God who has blessed us with gifts, abilities, and resources by sharing His blessings as good stewards of His gifts. Because underlying this is that our calling to proclaim Christ and present everyone mature in Christ is a task that demands the cooperation of all of God's people. In fact, even if all the churches were united 
we can't even fulfill that mission. It's beyond our human capacity. And that's why in verse 12 and 13, Paul points to Epaphras as an example of faithful prayer. He is wrestling in prayer. I love that image. And that's why in verse 2, Paul begins the section with a call to prayer. He says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. It's not just pray before you eat. It is make prayer an integral part of your life. He is calling us to devoted, consistent labor in prayer, just like Epaphras, because prayer expresses our dependence on God. And it's more than just having a grocery list of needs and a catalog of illnesses. Although praying for one another is part of loving one another. It's how we watch over one another in brotherly love. But we also need to recognize that loving one another means that we seek the best interests of the people around us. And that's why Epaphras' prayer is a model for us. He says, He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. He is asking God, to help the believers grow in faithfulness and grow in maturity. And that's what we need. That's how we need to pray. More than healing for so-and-so, we should want this person who is suffering from an illness to grow in likeness to Christ, to be drawn to Jesus. And, and that's how we stay alert, isn't it? Watchfulness is about alertness. It's continuing to be faithful in the midst of all the distractions. We pray for one another. We pray for ourselves. That's how Jesus wanted his disciples to watch and pray while he was in Gethsemane. And we recognize Paul's prayer request in verse 3. And pray for me, or pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. It's interesting that Paul is not asking them to pray for him while he is in prison so that he'd be comfortable. He says, pray that God would open doors for gospel proclamation. And so, if Paul needed prayer, I do too. <laughs> And I would appreciate your prayer, not just I appreciate Ev praying for me as I preach, but I'd also appreciate your prayer as I prepare to preach in Jamaica. And yes, I know, um, praying is hard work, isn't it? It's so hard to focus, and I, I struggle with it too. But one of the things I've, I've found that helps me pray is praying with other people. So Wednesday, I had the privilege of praying with three other pastors from from Guelph. And that's great because on my own, I, I, I get distracted. But somehow praying with other people keeps me focused and allows me to pray better. And if that's, a, and if that's what it's going to take, you know, go ahead. But I hope we recognize that Paul's 
call to prayer is more than just a duty to fulfill. It's not just checking a box off. Let's understand that prayer is a privilege that God has graciously given us to speak to the preeminent Lord of the universe. In fact, I hope you realize that Jesus died so that we might be able to pray, so that our prayers would be heard. And, you know, I I think, I believe that God is teaching us as a church to pray because He is leading us into challenges that are beyond our capability in the coming years. The growth of our church has made the need to renovate the washrooms and the need to add pastoral staff more urgent. Even running steam, as I've listened to Joel and Jen and Matt and Mark, yes, I am listening while you guys are having your meetings. (laughs) And Alexandra talking about the curriculum and all that, I am realizing more and more, man, running steam camp is more than we can handle. And that's great because our neediness and powerlessness breaks us out of our complacency to rely on God alone and act in faith. That's how we become watchful and alert. And as God answers our prayers, then we learn to be thankful. As we see God answering prayers beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, when when Matt and I were talking about the church giving to help him go to Vanuatu, I think he was hoping for, what, two tickets to be paid? Yeah, right? He got $10,000. Great. That's God answering our prayers beyond our expectations. And and God leads us into these challenges so that he might teach us how great and wonderful and absolutely dependable he is. See, prayer is absolutely critical to our mission as a church. You notice how Paul specifically prays that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. David Powell's comment... uh, his comments, it's um, quite helpful. Instead of believers simply being passive recipients of God's drama of salvation, Paul emphasizes the active role of each believer. Through prayer, one recognizes one's dignity in the ability to play a part in redemption history. In a passage that emphasizes the necessity in the unfolding of God's foreordained plan, Paul emphasizes the significance of prayer as a means through which believers can participate in this plan. Through prayer, God will continue His work through His messengers in claiming His Lordship among all creation. Do you realize how awesome that is? That you and I, though we are here in this wonderful city called Guelph, which in comparison to the larger world is a nowhere place. Yet you and I are being involved by God, are participating in God's awesome plan 
of claiming his lordship over all creation. Simply through our prayers. And that's why we desperately need to grow in our prayer life as a church. We need to embrace the privilege that God has given us in participating in his redemptive plan for the world through our prayers. And again, if the Apostle Paul, brilliant, gifted man that he was, needed prayer, well, where does that leave you and me? See, underlying Paul's request is the reality that we are absolutely dependent on God to open opportunities to proclaim the gospel. Richard Lucas points out, Paul evidently believes that opportunities for response and explanation are to be found everywhere. And, and before you discount what he's saying, please understand, Richard Lucas ministered in England, a very secular place, far more secular than we are. They've gone way ahead of us in Western Europe. But he recognizes that there are opportunities for response and explanation for everyone is looking to discover answers about life and its meaning. And Paul evidently thinks that believing Christians should be found everywhere too, ready to take up these frequent opportunities. And these opportunities come up at work, at home, in our neighborhoods, in our clubs, after we play matches. It is obvious what strain this removes from conscientious Christians. The pressure to raise certain topics and reach certain people can make it difficult to live or talk normally. In any case, we go to the office to work, not to evangelize. But being ready and willing to respond, the way is op open to a more serene and more successful approach to each day's opportunities. It opens the way, too, for a greater dependence on God's leading, as well as for a more relevant and sensitive witness suited to each individual. And remember, when the outsider has chosen the time and the place and the subject, how wonderfully free is the Christian to open his mouth and tell the good news of Jesus. This is the way one of our members has been able to be a witness to his friends and classmates. I was talking with him a couple of months ago. He's a very quiet individual, but he's a good friend who listens. And as he listens, the Lord opens the way for him to speak the gospel into their lives. And brothers and sisters, that's the privilege that God has given to us. We can declare God's truth to the people around us. But we are absolutely, totally reliant on God to open doors for proclamation. And so we need to pray, God, open these doors so I would be... And, and as we pray, we become sensitive to those doors that he is opening. And we need to pray because we are talking to people who are blinded by sin. We can't open their eyes. We need the Spirit to open their eyes to the beauty of Jesus. So we need to pray. No amount of great preaching can make a person be born again. But the Spirit of God uses gospel preaching to give new life and a new heart. So we need to pray, and we need to pray because proclaiming the gospel is nothing less than spiritual warfare. 
We are pointing people to Christ so that they may be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We are mounting an assault on hell's gates. And Satan is not going to cower behind the gates of hell waving a white flag. That's not his style. Satan will counterattack with all the power and malice he could muster. And the only way we could stand firm is to get on our knees in prayer. But prayer sounds so passive. It does sound very passive. But notice what Paul says next in verse 5. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Prayer isn't passive. It's active intercession. But it needs to be accompanied by us conducting ourselves wisely wherever we are. This is the flip side of Paul's emphasis on being living doxologies to God, displaying the peace that Christ has established in chapter 3. See, as our lives express gratitude to God for His grace, we please God and we adorn the gospel. Imagine if your family life was such that the people around you are astounded. How do you guys get along so well? Imagine you being such a wonderful worker that your co-workers look at you and say, wow, he's amazing. I wish there were more like you in the workplace. We demonstrate the beauty of God's purposes for the world as we live out of God's redemptive story. And so people see that and want some of that. Daniel is a great example of this wise living that makes the gospel attractive. And when I come back from vacation, Lord willing, we're going to talk about Daniel and how God used him in exile. Um, Wayne Baxter, who's going to be speaking on Sunday, sums up the life of Daniel this way. I hope he doesn't preach on Daniel next week, but <laughs> we'll see. Daniel lived a life marked by deep humility, an unyielding commitment to God, genuine compassion, vocational excellence, and unqualified integrity. Daniel's exemplary life, on one hand, helped to bridge and even to reduce the spiritual distance between his society and his faith. On the other hand, Daniel's skillful lifestyle established a firm foundation upon which his verbal witness could rest and find its support and through which his message could be better understood by his hearers. Wise conduct in a foolish world is part of God's means of opening doors to proclaim Christ. We can think of it as the challenge to engage in questionable behavior. Not questionable behavior as in morally doubtful, but questionable behavior in the sense that your conduct is so refreshingly different that people become curious about what makes you tick. How can you forgive this person who has just wronged you? How can you be so kind to that mean co-worker 
how do you put up with this guy? Like, everybody hates him. How can you be civil to him? Those are the questions that arise as we live out our faith and act out of the grace that Christ has bestowed upon us. I remember um, at my former church, we plagiarized the example of the fellowship churches in Quebec. They had a program called Je Mon Voisin, I Love My Neighbor. So they'd, every summer, they'd go around the community doing service projects for people in the community. And since we wanted to try it out, we decided we'd run a free car wash to show love for our neighbors. And we were very surprised because people came wanting to have their cars washed for free, but they kept wanting to give us money. We're like, no, it's free. Yeah, but what's the donation? <laughs> we have, what we have here is a failure to communicate. <laughs> It's free. <laughs> they, they, they kept wanting to give us money. We kept saying, no, here, here's some bottled water instead. And people were really puzzled. And we realized these folks had no experience of receiving gifts with no strings attached. They had no framework for understanding grace. Except here was the problem. It was a great witness. I was not prepared <laughs> to respond wisely. So when people ask, why is this free? I'm like, oh, oh. well, we receive salvation as a gift, so why shouldn't I serve you for free? And frankly, I wish I was better prepared and that I was more ready to give them the gospel. That's why Paul says, Notice verse 6. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. See, that, that's why we pray and ask God to open the door for gospel proclamation, so that we would be better prepared for the questions that people will ask in answer to our prayer. And as God opens the door, the challenge is to step in with gracious speech. Gracious speech in the sense of what we say and how we say it. See, if there's anything I've learned, raising my voice does not make me more right. It just makes me more annoying. And here's the worst part. Our speech reveals our hearts. And our conversation partners see our hearts better than they hear our words. So, brothers and sisters, instead of undermining our message by the way we speak, I pray and hope that we would speak with the kindness, compassion, and humility that Jesus models for us and that we experience from him. So that in our speech, we would show the beauty of Jesus by reflecting the heart of Jesus for sinners. Or in Paul's words, let's engage in salty speech. Now, in our day, salty speech is profane speech, right? No, that's not what Paul is talking about here. Salty speech in Paul's day meant compelling and interesting speech. 
So understand this. I misrepresent the gospel when I bore you. Because the, greatest, the gospel is the greatest news ever. And Jesus is the most awesome person that everybody needs to know. We can't talk to people about Jesus this way. Uh, you know, I want to talk to you about Jesus. He's great. Um, nobody will believe you, right? Our proclamation needs to be filled with delight in our Savior. And salty speech presumes a proper understanding of the people to whom we're communicating the gospel. One of the things I love about the Apostle Paul was that he was a master of contextualization. When you look through his sermons in Acts, you would see that when he was in the synagogue, he would proclaim Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament hopes to Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles. But when he was proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles who had no knowledge of Scripture, he would talk to them about creation and then work his way to Jesus. He did this because he was so committed to communicating the gospel intelligibly and meaningfully to his audience. And he got the attention of his audience and he kept the attention of his audience because he understood the burning questions in their hearts. And he showed how the gospel addressed those questions. The gospel proclamation at the heart of it is an act of love. It is an act of love for Jesus because we are so enthralled by his greatness. We cannot but speak of him. At the same time, Gospel proclamation is an act of love for the people to whom we speak because we're doing it out of care for them. We recognize that they are heading to a, an eternity of judgment outside of Christ. And we know their brokenness and we want them to know the joy that we have of being reconciled to God. That's why we proclaim the gospel. So here's a challenge for all of us. It's a, it's a way for us to put this sermon into practice. We are planning to run Christianity Explored for seven weeks from mid-September to the end of October. Christianity Explored provides an opportunity for people to ask questions about our faith while we go through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to do it over a meal because we want people to see how we interact with each other as a church. And we're running this because we want to hope, we, we want to invite the parents of the kids who, in, who attend our STEAM camp. But we would also want to use it as an opportunity for all of us to put this sermon into practice. So, before you go and visit your friend and say, hey, I wanted you to, I'm going to drag you to this thing in September. You've got three months. Let's start where Paul starts, shall we? Let us start by praying for God to open the door for you to communicate the gospel to one of your friends, one of your coworkers, one of your neighbors in the next couple of months. And then... Invite them to join you at least once. That's all I'm asking for. At least once 
to join you for Christianity Explored. Don't send them, bring them. Take them with you. And then, be ready to answer the questions they might have. And yes, I know, that's a big ask. And we need wisdom to do it well. But our confidence is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And He is at work in us, according to chapter 1, verse 9, filling us with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Let's agree, giving people the gospel is a task beyond our human ability. But our God is greater than the task, and He fits and equips us to be faithful. And that's why Paul closes this book by saying, grace be with you. It is not a wish. It is a promise. Our Lord Jesus Christ promised to be with us to the end of the age. And you know the context in which he gave that promise, right? Go and make disciples of all nations. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So brothers and sisters, let us take courage in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us live wisely for his glory. Let us be prayerfully on the lookout for the doors that our God is opening for us to speak the gospel. And let us be ready to answer people's questions with the wisdom and grace he provides. That's part of our way of giving thanks to this glorious God for the grace that he lavishes upon us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you've brought us, you've rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and you've transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. We thank you that through faith we have been united with Christ so that our life is hid with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, then shall we also appear with him in glory. Father, thank you for such a hope. And yet we realize that we live amongst the people who, who put their hope in vain things. We live among people who are drinking seawater. And so in their indulging in those idols to which they look for hope, security, and safety, they only find themselves frustrated and even more thirsty. And yet here we are you have given us the fountain of living waters in Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord, we pray, open doors for us so that we may point people to Jesus. Help us to live lives that will cause people to ask, what makes you different from me? 
And may you give us the courage, the wisdom, the grace that we need to tell them about Jesus, the infinite eternal Son who laid down his life for us so that they too may see the beauty of Jesus and put their faith in him. Oh Lord, may we be truly a base camp for believers, a lighthouse for the lost, a people who shine the light of Christ in our world today. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.